Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. This is how the masterful poet T.S. Eliot ends his rather pessimistic poem, The Hollow Men. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with someone once who was asking me about what it's like to be a priest while hearing a confession. What if the person confesses something scandalous, they asked. And of course, I had to remind them that the true reality that, that sin is boring. It's not exciting. It's not titillating. It's just boring and frankly absurd. Eliot's poem, in its original context, was about where humanity found itself after the collective trauma of World War I. But I think it works just as a generic description of our state in sin. Sin is not a bang, it's a whimper. And today we see, see one of those whimpers. We see this boring sin in Exodus, the sin of idolatry towards the golden calf. Israel always reminds me when I'm reading the Old Testament of that great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. They do it consistently throughout the Old Testament. The story of the golden calf is one of rebellion and punishment, but also intercession. The people of Israel force Aaron, their priest, to build them a golden calf, or more accurately, a young bull as an idol. And they do this from a place of seeming anxiety. They don't know where Moses is. He went up on the mountain, he stayed a few extra days, and now they're not sure he's ever coming back. Moses, of course, was how God spoke to the people of Israel, and he's nowhere to be found, so God must be hidden. Or maybe he doesn't exist at all. And the fact that they want a calf build is not some arbitrary thing that they just came up with, but rather this is what they would have worshipped or what the people would have worshipped in Egypt. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, the calf was viewed as a symbol of fertility. And accompanying their idolatry is this ecstatic and irrational behavior that was commonly paired with the worship of pagan deities. You see this in the way Moses comes down from the mountain and Joshua says, it sounds like there's a war in the camp. No, it was actually just a party. And as Israel is in the midst of this pagan worship and Moses comes down and he sees what's going on, he's carrying the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and he gets so angry, he shatters the tablets, which are the Ten Commandments. And we might say, oh, that's really a rational anger on Moses' part, but it's actually symbolic. It's symbolic that Israel has now broken the covenant that God had made with them. Then Moses destroys the idol. He burns it. He melts the gold. He grinds it into a powder. He casts it on the water and he forces everyone in Israel to drink it. This action is a punishment, but it's also polemic. The easy destruction of the idol proves that this false God has no real power. Israel has traded the worship of the living and true God for a statue that can't see, hear, speak, or even defend itself. The psalmist says this somewhere, that those who worship the idols are like them and that they're dumb and deaf. The people of Israel wanted a God that they could see, a God that they could touch. And so Moses lets them. He makes them consume it. And in many ways, this act is the opposite of what we're about to do when we receive the Eucharist. When we receive the Eucharist, we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the living Christ. So rather than it being a punishment or a polemic, it's a gift that sustains us from the God who actually does dwell among us. 
Given this situation, Moses does something surprising. Because if I was in Moses' shoes, and I bet you would agree with me, and the people did what they did, knowing that it was the wrong thing, knowing what God had done for them, knowing what God commanded of them, I think at that point I would say, I'm done. God, you let them, you let them do what they're going to do. But rather than leaving Israel to their own devices or abandoning them to the judgment of God, he goes to God to intercede for the people. He confesses their sins and asks for forgiveness, going so far as to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. If thou wilt forgive their sins, he asks, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. Now, God still does punish the people. At the end of the reading, he says he's going to to visit their sin upon them. And if you continue reading after our reading ends, he does this in the form of a plague. But this is not, I don't think, a a failure on Moses' part in terms of his intercession. Rather, we should understand the punishment that God sends as a result of this as a teaching tool, a way of getting Israel's attention, a way of purging them of their sin. The golden calf story is beautiful because it contains the gospel in germ. As Christians, we believe in centering our worship around the sacraments which have been given to us by our Lord. However, we should also be aware that the devil has his sacraments, those things that pull us away from God. And the insidious nature of satanic sacraments is that they substitute themselves for the worship of God in our lives. This is idolatry. When we adore something created instead of the creator. In human history, the pagans tended to commit idolatry externally, directed towards some sort of object that was carved or chiseled, some kind of statue. The Jews had a more internal form of idolatry, placing an improper emphasis on the law and their ethnic identity, both things that caused them to miss the fact that Christ was the promised Messiah prophesied by Scripture. But whatever poison, whatever kind of idolatry you take, the French reformer John Calvin, and by the way, this is probably the only time you're ever going to hear me quote John Calvin in a sermon, so enjoy it. French reformer John Calvin once said, and he was absolutely right, that the human heart is an idle factory. The human heart is an idle factory, constantly manufacturing things to put in God's place as that which we adore. This is a timeless truth that explains much of humanity's behavior over the centuries, our constant unfaithfulness, our constant failure to maintain the covenants that have been initiated by God. It explains Adam and Eve's behavior in the garden when they broke the covenant because they ate the fruit that they saw was good and they desired it instead of communion with God. It explains the way Israel constantly failed to keep the terms of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants of the Old Testament. And we think we're special? No, we break the new covenant all the time. In today's gospel reading, all of us can identify with those rebellious uh, uh, invitees to the wedding who kill the king's representatives. But we have a great high priest in the person of Jesus Christ who does what Moses and the law could never do. He makes atonement for our sins. We fail to give God honor and worship that we should have through our actions. And now the human experience is characterized by being crushed under the weight of an ever-compounding debt. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus comes to us in the incarnation to heal our wounded natures and gives to his Father the ultimate gift of a holy and righteous life, a life that we get to become partakers of. 
For those in Christ, then, it reconfigures everything. Punishment or chastisement from God become a means of restoration, a salve for the soul that reorients us towards the good. And so just as Israel's unfaithfulness highlighted God's justice and mercy exercised through the ministry of Moses, so our unfaithfulness highlights God's justice and mercy exercised through the person and work of Christ and the church that he established. As we've gone through the Old Testament this church year together, a constant mantra has been, their story is Christ's story, which is our story. Their story is Christ's story, which is our story. And if that's true, then that means that we are guilty of the sin of idolatry in our own lives. In fact, I would argue that our forms of idolatry are actually worse than the pagan forms of idolatry because they're far more subtle and therefore harder to identify. It's no surprise, for example, that people don't go to church the way that they used to. And that's not just in our tradition or in liturgical traditions or in mainline Protestant Christianity or in Roman Catholicism or in even evangelical Christianity. There's decline all across the board. And if you watch the news, you think the reason people stop going to church is because of scandal, because they had some sort of grand falling out, because of some terrible abuse cases, because of issues like sexuality and gender. But actually, if you look at the data, none of those are the reason that most people stop going to church. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who stop going to church for those reasons. That is very true, and we need to address those cases as they arise. But most people stop going to church simply because they, they change their habits. They undergo some kind of minor life change that adjusts their schedule, and then they just fall out of the habit. Travel youth sports. Johnny gets to middle school. He's got to do travel baseball. Oh, well, we'll miss church for just a season. But that season turns into the whole of middle school. It turns into the whole of high school. And then once he goes to college, you're not going to church. So it can be travel youth sports. It can be brunch. It could be golf. It could be the family trips. It could be the Renaissance Fair. The thankfully only one more week of that. Or what else? whatever else. And of course, there's nothing wrong with each of these things in and of themselves, but they're not more important than church. And when we act like they are more important than church, then we've committed a very subtle form of idolatry. And so for many of us, the covenant with God isn't broken by some dramatic act of apostasy, not with a bang, but a whimper. It's far worse. We break the covenant through little acts of carelessness and inattentiveness, whether those be liturgical, devotional, relational, or psychological. We're not faithful in the little things, and sometimes, most of the time, we don't even notice it. We're like the man who shows up to the wedding in the parable without the proper garments. It's a kind of carelessness that signals we don't take our calling seriously. But praise God that his property is always to have mercy. Jesus' high priesthood means that he intercedes on our behalf to the Father, pleading his blood for us. And alongside him stands the whole company of heaven, angels, archangels, prophets, apostles, martyrs, holy people from every generation. And so we should feel bolstered by their prayers. And not only their prayers, something we celebrate on All Saints Day, but you should feel bolstered by the prayers of your priests. Father David and I, remember each and every one of you at least once a week when we go to Holy Communion at the intentions. We have a list of everyone who attends and we always mention your name every week. And further, we should feel bolstered by the prayers of other people in the church. Pray for your priests. 
Pray for the people in the pews around you. Pray for the people who attend other services. When we understand that we occupy this covenant cut by the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then it means we should rethink the trials and tribulations that come our way. These aren't acts of retribution from an angry God who's deeply offended by us. He's not a killjoy in the sky who wants to prevent us from having fun. Rather, he's a loving father who gently chastises those he loves for our benefit. And so how should we then live knowing that what happened at the foot of the mountain with the golden calf happens in our hearts on a regular basis? The first thing we must do is ruthlessly root out the idolatry that subtly plagues our lives. When Israel went into the promised land and then subsequently every time they reformed the nation after lapses into apostasy, they were called to completely and utterly destroy their idols. They weren't supposed to coexist with them. They weren't supposed to make a little room. They weren't supposed to worship God 60% of the time and the pagan gods 40% of the time. No, the strategy was complete and total scorched earth. And it correlates well with what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because it's better to enter heaven maimed than to be cast into hell with your whole body. Don't coexist with your idols, because peace is not possible. Your strategy must be total war, scorched earth, complete destruction of them, because they are attempting to wreck your souls. Remember, who you are is not determined by your hobbies or various facets of your identity, your class, age, race, political ideology, or anything else. It's ultimately determined by the fact that you exist in a sacred, covenantal relationship with God by virtue of your baptism. And so as a member of the church, you're called to exercise a priestly function to the world to stand in the breach between the world and God. And this involves taking on the ministry of Moses that he exhibits to us in the reading this morning. It involves praying for people, especially for non-Christians, bringing them to God even if they won't heed his call, just like Father David talked about last week with the friends who bring their crippled friend to Jesus when he couldn't walk. That's our calling. It means engaging with others through relationships that care for them, genuinely care for them, and reveal to them the love of God. And it means evangelizing. It means giving them the reason for the hope that you have. It means proclaiming Christ crucified for the remission of sins. To us, it must be that God is either all in all, he's everything, or he's nothing. He's not something we pull out of our back pockets on occasion when it's convenient or when we feel like we need him when we're just having a bad day. The idols that we place over him in our lives will not save us. Money, wealth, status, class, all that goes away in the end. Like the golden calf, our idols will be destroyed by the fire. So the question is, what will we do about it? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.